0: Now, we come to the second warning passage. Chapter 3, verses 7 through 19. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, now, notice, he's quoting Psalms. And the Holy Spirit is not the author of the Psalms. In fact, it says somebody else is the author of the Psalms. But the point that he's trying to remind them is, yes, there was a human author for Psalms, but really, ultimately, the Holy Spirit is the author of the Psalms he's trying to remind them that because he's going to make a lot of connections here. He's going to ruffle some feathers. And he wants to remind them, the Holy Spirit said this. You can argue all you want with me, but the Holy Spirit said this. Oh, that today you would listen as he speaks. Do not harden your heart as in the rebellion of the day of testing of the wilderness. There your fathers tested me and tried me, and they saw my works for forty years. Therefore I became provoked at that generation and said, Their hearts are always wandering, and they have not known my ways. As I swore in my anger, they will never enter my rest. See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has an evil unbelieving heart that forsakes the living God. But exhort one, of each, exhort one another each day as long as it's called today that none of you may be become hardened by sin's deception for we have become partners with Christ if in fact we hold our initial confidence firm until the end. As it says oh that today you would listen as he speaks. Do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For which ones heard and rebelled Was it not all those who came out of Egypt under Moses' leadership? And against whom has God provoked for 40 years? Whom was God provoked for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned, whose dead bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did He swear that would never enter His rest, except those who were disobedient? So we see that they could not enter because of unbelief. Now here's the context. The Exodus. God calls Moses to go into Egypt and lead his people out of Egypt. They were enslaved in Egypt for a little under 400 years. And they were oppressed by an evil pagan, I think I am God, Pharaoh, who tried to exterminate all the baby boys, and then some, and then some, and then some, and then some. God clearly revealed himself through the ten plagues when he judged Egypt for their sins. He then brought Israel out of Egypt into the wilderness. Now you have to understand, this is all an analogy of your salvation. So all throughout the Bible, Egypt is a symbol of the house of slavery, sin, and death. And Paul says you were once enslaved to sin and death, but now you're free. Egypt is brought under judgment. The only way to escape the judgment of God, the wrath of God, is if you sacrifice an unblemished lamb and put the blood of it on your doorpost to your household. In the same way that the only way you can escape your enslavement to sin and death is if you accept Jesus Christ as the Lamb of God and His blood covers your doorpost, to your household of your heart, your body, your life, so to speak. He then brings them out, and He leads them out of the Egypt through the pillar of fire, which is the glory of God. Which is later going to be called the Shekinah glory of God, which means the dwelling of God. Which is the dwelling of God, which in John, we're going to be told that Jesus is the light, and He tabernacled, He dwelled with us. And that He is the light of the world, and the Holy Spirit is going to come as little tongues of fire, and dwelling us just like that pillar of fire. So the pillar of fire is the Holy Spirit that leads them from their life of slavery to a new life in their promised land. As they go through the Red Sea, that's their baptism. Because Paul says in Second Corinthians chapter 10 that that was their baptism. And they come to the rock where they get water, and, Christ, and Paul says the rock is Christ. And Christ had water come out of His side, which is an image of the Holy Spirit being poured upon people. And so they experienced all that. Everybody who placed their faith in the blood of the Lamb, they were led out by the Holy Spirit, they were brought to the rock, they were given life, they were given bread and manna from heaven, which Christ is, I am the bread of life. And He provided for them. They were in the wilderness, they came to Mount Sinai about three weeks later, and God came to them and said, I am going to make you a holy nation, a kingdom of priests, and you're going to be special to me. And if you pay attention to the verbs there, he actually invites them to come up onto the mountain. They don't get translated like that in a lot of our English translations, but every single time you see that verb, everywhere else in the Bible always is onto the mountain, not to the mountain. And they say, no, he's too scary. He will kill us if we go up on the mountain. God invited them into his presence, and they were too afraid. Now, what's interesting is Moses says, do not fear God, but fear God. And you're like, what? Because he says, do not be afraid of God, of what he'll do to you, but fear him in this all reverence kind of a fear. Because the beginning of all wisdom is the fear of the Lord. And he invites them on the mountain, they refuse it. So the next thing he does is he begins to give them the law. Because where you refuse to have a relationship with God, there's always law. Because how do you regulate people's sin if they have no relationship Fear of consequences. We know that with our children. If your children don't do it because they love you, then they don't do it because they're afraid of the consequences. And so, then he brings Moses up. He's given the law, just only the Ten Commandments. He starts small. If you've ever paid attention to the Bible, the law takes a long time to give. And usually what happens is the people sin, God gives more laws. The people sin, God gives more laws. people sin, if they had just stopped sinning, they would have had no more laws. Not that that would have been possible. It's the same way. You don't come up with every rule that you could have ever thought of for your kids. They always remind you of new rules that you need to make. Okay, yeah, that's right. Don't touch that one either. Oh, yeah, that's right. Don't touch that either. Because of sin. And so, you give them the law, and God's speaking up there, and then while he's up there for 40 days, God gives them two things. The law and the altar of sacrifice. That's all they have. Love God, love others, And when you don't, sacrifice. Then they worship the golden calf. And they lose the right to really truly be a special nation. And that's when God just dumps the Mosaic Covenant on them. Then he brings them to the promised land. And he's ready to bring them to their salvation. They've been saved from, but he's ready to bring them to. And they want to send 12 spies. See, in Numbers it sounds like it's God's idea. But when you get to Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy, Moses tells you, you wanted to send 10 spies, so God said, yeah, you can do it. Or 12 spies, sorry. So Because they didn't believe that God could give them the land. So they said, hey, we need to look at the land. So they send 12 spies in, 10 of them come back and say, there's no way we can take the land. And two people say yes, Caleb and Joshua. And God says, why do these people constantly despise me? I am tired of the grumbling And they don't just say we can't take the land. They don't just say God's not capable of giving us this salvation. They say God only brought us from in order to just kill us. Let's find a new leader that will lead us back into our old life of sin and idolatry. That's spitting God in the face. This isn't just, I didn't have enough faith. This isn't, I just committed a sin. This isn't just, oh God, I'm so sorry I failed. This is, I want a new God who will lead us back into our life of sin because this God is just messing with us. He's just saving us from so he can kill us. They never ever embraced the two and nothing changed in their life. And then when he judges them and says, okay, that's fine. If you don't want salvation then you're all going to die in the wilderness. And all your children, that you were too afraid that they're going to die, they're actually going to live and go. But you are not. And then they're so, they're, okay, 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 God. We'll go, we'll go to the land, we'll go to the land. And God says, no, I'm judging you. This is a rebellion. And they're like, we don't care what we're going to do. it. We believe you. We, we, we don't want to be punished. You no, know, the only time that they want to go to the land now is because they're afraid of being punished. And they did go into the land and they all slaughtered because God didn't go with them. And then the, the, the final conclusion of this passage is they didn't go into the promised land because they believed. They went into the promised land because they didn't want to be condemned. It wasn't a relationship. It was just, I just don't want to suffer. And that's, that's the typology that's set up here for what he's saying here. So Psalm 95 then is the theological Unpacking of that story. This is the theology behind all that story. And the ultimate theology is they did not believe. They had no faith. They had no hope. Therefore, they died. Period. Now, there's more to that, but that's what he's going to start with. And so when we unpack this, we see this. He's going to give you He's going to use Psalm 95 in two ways. In this chapter, he's going to unpack Psalm 95 with a moral lesson. Don't make the same moral mistake. Here's your behavioristic moral of the story. Don't do what they did. When we get to chapter 4, he's going to unpack it with a typology of the repeating of the today. So we start with the moral lesson. The moral lesson is this. See to it, brothers and sisters. Verse 12. That none of you have an evil, unbelieving heart that forsakes the living God. Now, you don't get it any more unsaved than that. Some people have asked, well, they just died. Does that mean that they never went to heaven and that kind of stuff? They had an evil, unbelieving heart that forsake God, forsook God. Evil. Only the righteous go to heaven. They did not believe. Only those who believe will not perish and have eternal life. And they forsook, which the word being here is to completely turn away against in what's called a high-handed sin. And a high-handed sin, the the thing that I like about high-handed sin, it's exactly what you're visualizing. It's where you literally take your hand and you shake your fist at God and you say, screw you, I don't want anything to do with you. And the Bible makes it very clear, there is no sacrifice for a high-handed sin. There's a sacrifice for every sin, but there's no sacrifice for a high-handed sin in the Bible. When you shake your fist at God, there is no sacrifice that can pay for that sin. Now, it doesn't mean that you can't repent, but there's no sacrifice that covers that when you blatantly reject God. And that's the image that's being painted here. When you're in the wilderness, and God says, you're despising me, and God calls you evil, and God says, how much longer must I put up with you? The only other time he ever says that is when these Pharisees were rejecting Jesus, and Jesus says, how much longer must I put up with you people? It's the only other time you ever see God saying that in the Bible. Is a legalistic, blatant rejection of of the one that God has sent. And God says, you're going to die. And you don't ever, ever go go to the promised land. So the warning is, don't do that. Now, his audience are believers. So that kind of makes it a little scary. His audience is the believers. His audience is the church. And he's looking at you and he's saying, don't you dare forsake being saved too. Do not think that being saved from is enough. Now here's the reality. All these people are obviously a part of this community of believers, and they're all reading this letter, which means they're attracted to God in some kind of a way. They're committed to God in some kind of way, yet they're in danger of walking away. It doesn't mean everybody is, but if any pastor will tell you that when you're preaching a sermon on Sunday, your sermon has to speak to every single walk of faith. You have people who've been, they're on fire for God. They've been walking for years. They are unshakable. They are an oak in their faith. And just sitting right next to them is somebody who's ready to chuck the entire system out the door. And sitting next to them is somebody who just walked into the church for the first time. And your sermon's got to speak to everybody. So, some people read this and they get really scared. And they're like, oh my gosh, if he's saying about this, maybe we can lose our da da. no. He knows that his audience is mixed and he knows that there are people in here who are in danger of walking away and so he's speaking to them. But at the same time, that doesn't mean everybody reading this letter is that way. And so you have to realize that the you is plural and within the plurality, there's always a whole spectrum of where people are in their faith. And so he's going to talk first to them and then he's going to come along later and say, but that's not so with you. I know that you're not doing that. You're like, wait a minute, the you is exactly the same. But he's talking to different people in the church, different people in the audience. And so he says this, if your life has just been a bunch of, I come from this, I have come from that, I have come from that, I have come from that. But there's no truly intimate relationship with the Son of God, Jesus Christ. There is no I'm changing and I'm becoming something better. I have discovered new things. I am going to and you're starting to get a little bored with the faith, if you're starting to begin to think, I don't know, this Islam that's showing up all the time in the movies and is starting to look attractive, our, our presidential leaders are making a good argument for Islam, or I don't know, this Hinduistic New Age movement that shows up in every single TV show, touched by an angel and all these kind of things, There's, this seems really attractive, this seems untruth. If that's you, then do not forsake that. And this is your fire and, hell, fire and brimstone sermon. Today! You do not know how many more todays you will have. It's, it's from the Bible. <laughs> as long as there's a today, do today, do not, do not wait till tomorrow. Today! If you've just listened to these first two chapters, how could you ever think that the New Age movement looks attractive now? How could you ever think that Hinduism looks attractive now after the first two chapters? Please, do not be like the wilderness generation that got caught up in all the wonder and the amazingness of God, but that's all it was, was a show to them. In the end, they were not believing that God was good, because they would not trust Him. Don't do that, because there is nothing else better than Jesus. And that's going to be his argument. But exhort, encourage. What is the solution to a heart that begins to wonder? The community. Now granted, I know that we can think of all the ways that the American church is screwed up today. But at the same time, without the American church, I would have never known Jesus Christ. And Jesus died for the American church. So, what is the cure... For a heart that begins to wonder. Now notice that the first warning was a heart that begins to wonder and drift. Something that you don't really know is happening. And the next thing you know, you're just not as close to Jesus as you used to be. But now he's saying that drifting eventually leads to an intentional rejection. What is the cure for that? To be in the community of believers encouraging each other. Encouraging each other in the Word of God, encouraging each other in our experiences. People struggling with different things require different things. And so this is what he's encouraging you to do. Do not stop gathering together. Do not stop encouraging each other. Do not stop telling your stories. I think our testimony should be just as much of our worship service as anything else. I mean, music is great and sermons are great, but testimonies, and I don't mean that you need to have testimonies about where how somebody came to Christ all the time. Some of the most powerful testimonies is the last couple of weeks have just sucked but let me tell you how Jesus got me through them. That's what we need to hear more of, is this testimony. You don't have to get up and speak for several minutes. It could just be, I stand at the church and things have been really horrible and really awful and da-da-da-da-da-da. But the devotions the last several weeks have just reminded me of how cool God is and how I can keep persevering. We need to hear more of that. We need to encourage each other more in that. To be reminded that there are other people who are struggling, but other people are persevering. And it's worth it. Because it's paying off. And that's what he's saying. That's what it means to encourage each other. And sometimes the encouragement is the prayer. Sometimes it's getting back in the Word. Sometimes it's deeper than just a My Daily Bread devotion. Sometimes it's, it's all kinds of things. But do not forsake the living God. But exhort one another for another each day as long as it's called today. As long as it's called today. Just keep doing it. That's your perseverance. It's Alcohol is Anonymous, one day at a time. It's Dr. Leo Marvin from What About Bob, Baby Steps. Okay, it's just taking it one day at a time. As long as it's today, encourage each other. Do not worry about tomorrow. And then when tomorrow comes, it's today. Encourage each other. (laughs) Only encourage each other today. That's all you have to do. That's all you have to think about that none of you may become hardened by sin's deception. There is a roaring lion who is roaming around seeking to devour you. And Satan never, ever, ever comes up to you and says, Oh, have I got a lie for you? It always sounds so good. And the only way that we can fight against that is if we're in the Word and we're worth to get each other as a community of believers. And so now he's saying... You, you focus on this object of Christ, but you don't just do it alone. You gather together. There's one single hope, but there are many people hoping. And we draw strength from the object, but we also draw strength from the people who are also standing next to us. The cloud of believers, that he's going to go on later, say in chapter 11. Because do not be hardened, The hard heart is when you literally make your hard heart cold. This is important. Hard heart is an image of lack of salvation, a lack of regeneration, a lack of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. This is the term that was used every time Pharaoh said, forget you, I'm going to do my own thing. His heart was hardened. But the place that you really see this the most clear is when you get to Jeremiah 31, Jeremiah 31 or Joel 2, I forget which one I went blank, where God says, I will give you a new heart. No longer will you have a heart of stone. And I will pour out my spirit on all people. That makes it very clear that whenever a hard heart is invoked, it's a lack of regeneration, which is a lack of salvation. And that's what you're in danger of. So you have two choices here. You either interpret this as they know, once did not have a hard heart and now they've lost their salvation because it's gone back to a pre-regenerate state. Or that you cannot lose your salvation, therefore it's always been hard. hard, And God and He's trying to encourage you to let it be softened. But once again, we'll unpack that in chapter 6. Right now, just let this marinate. Okay? Yes? Yes. If you, if you time, if you need later. In brief, if you really pay attention to the pattern, what's interesting is that God comes to him and says, let my people go. And it says that Pharaoh hardened his heart and said no. So God sends a plague. So then God says, hey, let my people go. And it says, Pharaoh hardened his heart. And God sends a plague. Then the third time, it says, let my people go. And then it says, God hardened Pharaoh's heart, and Pharaoh said no. Then you go back. Two times Pharaoh hardens his heart, third time God does it. And you see this pattern. And what you see is it's kind of like when Romans says, because they pursued their sexual immorality and their desires for idols, God gave them over into what they desired. Or when like, you catch a kid smoking cigarettes, and you say, you want to smoke cigarettes? Then here you go. Follow through. Smoke them all right here in front of me. Now I'm not saying that's good parenting, but I'm just saying that's an example. Um, it may be, depending on your kid. Um, <laughs> so you see this interesting pattern where Pharaoh first makes the choice to harden his heart, and God says, fine, you want to harden your heart? You're going to harden your heart. And then God backs off and gives him another chance. And Pharaoh keeps doing it. He says, fine, you want to do it? Then do it. And so you see predestination and free will is like two wings on an airplane. You don't know exactly which one you're really truly depending on in every single moment, and they both exist at the same time, I and mean, you both need them. And I don't know where they connect and where they divide in heaven, but they just kind of coexist. And so just like I don't understand how God is triune and one at the same time, I don't understand predestination and free will and how they both work. I just know they both are. And so it's the same way when God's Joseph says, What you intended for evil, God intended for good. So God actually intended all that stuff. He just meant it to be good. Or they intended all that stuff, but they meant it to be bad. And yet, they're held responsible for their choices, but yet at the same time, God intended it. So, I don't know. (laughs) So, but there you kind of see the give and take. You see Pharaoh hardening his heart, but God responding and doing it too. And And I just, somehow it's just all working together, and thank God that I'm not God and have to dissect it all. So, does that kind of help? That's my best explanation. (laughs) Other than that, I don't know what's going on. So, 4, verse 14. We have become partners with Christ if in fact we hold to our initial confidence firm until the end. Now, once again, there you go. That's the second comment to perseverance. And he adds a little bit to it. He keeps the conditional statement. We become partners with Christ if... You hold firm to your confession until the very end. He adds that. Once again, that's your perseverance statement. And this becomes even more important because they committed themselves to God by leaving Egypt, but they did not hold firm to their confession and failed to enter the end too. Therefore, if you want to become partners with God, don't be like them. Salvation is from and to. And please, oh, please, oh, please do not confuse the two or blur them together. We, we haven't made that distinction very well. They, they used to. The church for hundreds of years used to make that distinction all the time. The Puritans, no matter what the media tells you, the Puritans are probably the, 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 the pinnacle of Christian faith in the Western world. Those people were solid, that doesn't mean they were perfect. They were solid. It was the later generations who were the legalistic, all that stuff. But the, the, the early Puritans who came into America, they were solid. And they clearly defined a from to, a from, and a to. We've lost that distinction. And that's what he's warning from. Do not confuse the two. Some of you have been from, and you've mistaken that too. And now you think Christianity is boring and lifeless or it's not answering your questions because there's nothing in you regenerating you. There's nothing giving you joy. There's nothing giving you peace. I mean, that was my struggle. For a long time, I grew up from. I knew Christianity was right, but there was nothing changing in my life, and I questioned it all. Luckily, God, I kept going, and I found it. But we can. I did the same thing. I confused it. If I'm coming from, then why don't I have all this stuff? And I never had gone to. I never surrendered. I never submitted. And that's what he's warning to. Do not confuse the two. Oh, that today you would listen as he speaks. Now you feel like you're talking to your children. Oh, that today that you would just listen to me. (laughs) Do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For which one's heard now? He's going to ask three questions here. And this is very important. The three questions are going to define who these people are. For which ones heard and rebelled? Was it not all those who came out of Egypt under Moses? So, who heard and then said, God is evil, He wants to kill us, we're going to be evil, we're going to despise you, we have no belief, we have no faith, we have no hope. Forget you, God. We want to go back into our idolatry. Who were they? They were the people who saw the wonders of God physically in front of their face for 11 months straight. Plague after plague after plague. They were the ones who believed that God could save them. And they placed their hope and trust in the blood of a sacrificed lamb, so that they could escape it. They were the ones who followed the pillar of God, the light, and led it out of the wilderness. They were the ones who were baptized in the Red Sea. They were the ones who tasted the heavenly gifts of God miraculously before in the water and the manna and the bread. And they were the ones who said, Forget you, God. I'm done with you. This is not what I bought. This is not what I thought we were going into. I don't want the two you're leading us to because there's giants in the land and I'm tired of being in the wilderness and that's probably all you're going to keep doing that to us. They looked like they had really committed themselves. But in the end, they said, this is not for me. And if you question, God makes it very clear. They despise me. They are evil. They do not believe. Their hearts are hardened. They forsook me. You don't get any more unchristian than all those terms. I mean, how many more terms do you need to see that? Don't be like that. No, he's not saying, look at your neighbors, and look at their life, and see if they're in danger. He's saying, you look at your heart. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and see if there's any ancient thoughts in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. Psalm 139. Now, If I see that my friend is in danger, then I am to encourage them, not be like, oh my gosh, because how do we fix an unbelieving heart? Encouragement, not condemnation, not judgment. Here's the thing as Christians, if somebody has confessed, then we need to assume that they've been saved too. But at the same time, if we don't see evidence of that, we encourage them as if they have not. Does that make sense? If somebody's made the confession, you assume that they truly are saved because you can't condemn them. But if you don't see evidence of fruit and perseverance in their life, then you give them the gospel as if they need to hear it again. Because even Paul says, I preach the gospel to those who are saved. The gospel is not a one time thing, there's so much to it. And we all need to hear the gospel again sometimes. And that's what it means to encourage each other. I take your confession at face value, but because I don't see perseverance, I'm going to encourage you in the gospel once again because I love you. So you look at your own heart, and you judge your own heart. And then you look at your neighbor, and you encourage them. Because that's the cure for a hardened heart. That's the cure. Notice that Jesus had more condemnation for the legalistic people within the community of church than he did for the horrible sinners outside. We tend to be the most ungracious towards our own people. The second question he asks is this, and against whom was God provoked for 40 years? Wasn't those who sinned whose dead bodies fell in the wilderness? They didn't just stop there. They kept doing it for 40 years. People who truly have hardened hearts, they don't repent. If you pay attention to the parable of the rich man and Lazarus and how the rich man went to hell and Lazarus went to heaven, and Lazarus was like, Oh God, please send somebody so that my brothers don't end up here. If you really pay attention to that parable, the point is that people in hell don't repent. Even though he didn't want his brothers to go to hell, notice that he never ever said. He never said, Oh Lazarus, I am so sorry for what I did to you. He said, God, you send Lazarus over here and you, give him, you make him give me some water. Oh no, Abraham, you're wrong. If you sent somebody, my brothers wouldn't go. He had the audacity to question Abraham. He only didn't want to suffer. He did not want to repent. Forty years in the wilderness, they just didn't want to suffer. But they had no desire to repent. And that's how you know somebody has a hard heart too. Just because Cain said, oh God, this is too much for me to handle, doesn't mean that he wasn't repenting. Or it doesn't mean that he was repenting. And sometimes I think we confuse the crying out for mercy as repentance. Repentance is, I'm sorry, I screwed up, I shouldn't do that, that's dishonored you and brought you disfavor, I'm going to turn away from it. And I'm going to submit myself to every kind of accountability or Bible study or prayer group that I can to try to stop doing this. That's repentance. Doesn't mean you automatically stop, but you're submitting yourself. And that's what he says here. Who was he constantly angry with? A people who never repented for 40 years for what they had done. 40 years of no repentance. And therefore they all died. Died, 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 died. Third question. And to whom did he swear that they would never enter his rest except those who were disobedient? They didn't enter his rest because they were disobedient. Now, don't stop there. Because that can make it sound like, oh my gosh, he actually is saying if you're disobedient, you don't get salvation. Because he goes on, and now he has this final conclusion. So we see that they could not enter because of unbelief. What was their real problem? Not because they were a bunch of smokers and cussers and drinkers and sexually immoral people, although they were some of that. Not because they didn't do the animal sacrifice the right way. Not because they did not have a believing heart, period. So their unbelief resulted in disobedience. Their disobedience revealed their unbelief. Their lack of repentance revealed their unbelief. He's not saying that disobedience means that you will not enter the land. He's saying that those who looked like it, but rebelled, those who wandered for 40 years and never repented, and constantly did nothing but disobedience, that three things revealed an unbelieving heart. Does that make sense? Their rebellion against God, their lack of repentance, and the constant disobedience revealed that their heart was not a believing heart. And even though they had a save from, they revealed themselves to not have a save to. Why? Because God said, I swear that you never will enter my rest. That's pretty absolute. And he didn't just swear it. He swore in his anger. Now, this isn't like you and I where we just get angry and fly out the handle and, and we say these stupid things. This is the anger as in the divine wrath of God that he's completely justified in because God cannot tolerate sin because he's just. So this should be said more in the wrath of God. He swore that they will never enter his rest. Judgment day. Why? Because of unbelief. No matter how much they looked at, God saw their heart. And eventually, they could not persevere. Because an unbelieving heart can look good for a while. But eventually, after 40 years, you kind of expose yourself. Now, Paul John comes along in chapter 1, chapter 2, sorry. And he says, really, I love this statement. They went out from among us to show that they never belonged to us. For if they belonged to us, they never would have departed from us. But their departing from us revealed that they never belonged to us. You're like, oh, okay. <laughs> What he's saying is that all these people that I'm condemning in the book of 1 John, and oh, he has a lot of condemnation in that book, they did not persevere with the community of believers and ended up leaving us. Their leaving us shows that they never belonged to us. Because if they belonged to us, they never would have left us because they would have persevered until the very end and why they were with us, you could not tell the difference. That's why you started leaving behind the teaching of the apostles, and started going after their teaching, because you couldn't see the difference between the two. But now their departing from us shows that there was a difference in their heart, because they never were a part of us. Because if they were, believers always persevere. And that's what he's saying here. Please, 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 Run the race and finish it. But don't do it in your own works, and your own efforts, because you're not going to be able to persevere. Please, after these first two chapters, see how amazing Jesus is as our object of our hope and fall in love with that and know Him and cling to Him, even if you have to dig your nails into His arms and encourage each other all the time as long as there is a today so that you truly will be saved too and then persevering will have trials but it will be guaranteed because he will finish the work he began in you that's the encouragement here that's the encouragement Jesus is better any questions, comments sit in silence and digest And this is the important thing. This is the first thing I forgot to mention. It says that they could not enter his land, his rest. It didn't say that they chose not to, or it says that they were not allowed. God forbid them to actually enter, which is a judgment there.